The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 18, The End of a New Beginning. The president had just finished lunch the next day with Jim Curry and Rich Neal. The men had barely touched their food and Curry smoked cigarette after cigarette. The cabinet meeting was minutes away as the men rose from the table. They made their way into the corridor to go into the cabinet room. You said it yourself, Mr. President, said Neil. No matter what we do, we're damned. It's our only viable option, said Curry, as they were technically debating the issue right down to the wire. We have to take whatever comes and hope that that result is less a tragedy than that bomb. There's another aspect to this problem, Jim. Unless Richards plans to die in that pyramid, we must assume that he's at large right now. He could do what McNally and Peabody couldn't do, and that is tell the world about Hudson. That, my friends, is another one of our ongoing problems, said the president as they walked along. Both agencies, Army Intelligence and all state and local forces, have Richards' picture. Richards is the least of our worries right now. Well, let's go in and we don't want to keep them waiting, said the president as Neil opened the door and they walked in. As the members of his cabinet and the Joint Chiefs stood, the president suddenly realized the severity of the situation. He attempted to smile but remained serious. He felt tired. His hair even seemed whiter in the mirror this morning and his wrinkles deeper. They stared at him as he walked to the center table. Grayson stood next to the president's chair, but Monty was not in the room. The president's heartbeat increased against his chest as he looked around the room. The door was shut and the men sat down. The president called the meeting to order. I've called this meeting today for what I consider a matter of great national importance. The past 24 hours have been tiring for me and my staff. Yesterday afternoon at 3 p.m., the Central Intelligence Agency received at the door to the room flung open as Monty barreled through the doorway. He approached the president, who looked up, and he whispered in the president's ear, Crisis is over. Please step outside. Excuse me one minute, gentlemen. Something else has come up, said the president as Monty escorted him into the corridor. Mr. President, I've been on the phone to Kamamuchu. Please come with me, he said as he stepped into a side office. Inside was a newspaper spread across the desk. I think if you read this story, Mr. President, page 44, a lower right-hand column. The president looked down at the story. All right, let's see here. News around the country. Astronomers at the Hale Observatory reported an unusual sighting in the heavens last evening. At 11.30 p.m., Dr. Ronald Schuler and Dr. Yuri Pochek observed a small object which they reported a perfect pyramid or triangle as they called it being hurled from the solar system at high speed that reflective object remains a mystery to the scientists and other observatories who have not yet confirmed the sighting the president perplexed looked up at monty monty handed the receiver to him this is the president mr president i assume you've read the story i have doctor but how can this be Why didn't you discover that sooner, Doctor? Mr. President, I have no idea that Richards would be so foolish as to not look for such a change while he was still tied into the system. It wasn't until I heard the story about the pyramid this morning that I realized what had happened. I got on the phone and I called Chief Monty. How in God's name did that pyramid get out there? Mr. President, Richards was hurled through space and time. When the pyramid materialized, it was not on Earth. 
maybe gravity or some stabilizing influence on it at this development stage. I don't know. But what I do know is that object is traveling away from us at high speed. What about the astronomers? Pyramid will be out of range of their telescopes very shortly. There will be less and less light reflected off the surface. However, if the bomb goes off, the explosion could probably be detected by the naked eye. If one looks close enough at the right time... Doctor, are you absolutely sure? This is Richards? I mean, it all sounds well and good. You're the expert. Are you sure? Yes, I am sure. Enough to call off the evacuation? Mr. President, I am aware that thousands of lives could depend on my answer. I could tell you to draw your own conclusions, but I won't do that. But I am 100% positive that that pyramid leaving the solar system and the pyramid which left this complex are one in the same. If there is a bomb under Washington, D.C., it is not from this complex. I think you just lifted the weight of the world off my shoulders. He turned to Monty. Monty, what do you think? Stand with the doctor. Do you have any reservations? None. And you'd call off the evacuation? Yes, sir, I'd call it off at once. I'm getting back to the meeting. Doctor, I'll send out Grayson Curry and Rich Neal to assist you. Terminate the evacuation, Monty. Set up a meeting with all parties concerned. Doctor, I've just ordered Monty to terminate the evacuation. Also, I've asked him to schedule a meeting so we can evaluate our moves and unwind here. We all need to unwind, Mr. President. Very good, Doctor, and thank you. I'm looking forward to it, Mr. President. President hung up the phone and looked at Monty. Come on, let's go. They slowed as they neared the cabinet room. The room was alive with conversation as the two men slowly walked in. The president fought to control himself. He wanted to yell as loud as he could and inform them of the long chain of events. Now as he sat down, he tried to collect his thoughts. They would want to know what his so-called event of national importance was all about. Gentlemen, please excuse my absence. Before I left, I described an event of national importance. And that event, he said as he paused for a second, is the security of the United States. The men looked at each other. National security was a vital issue, but was it worth the discussion to be called to the cabinet room? The president continued as thoughts of the past weeks weighed heavily on his mind. We must keep this country strong from all threats, both domestic and foreign. We can't afford to let up for one day or one minute when it comes to the preservation of liberty for this country. For gentlemen, Keeping this country strong must be our ultimate goal. The president continued his impromptu lecture for 45 minutes. They listened not as much to his message, but to his sheer intensity. The lecture was followed by a detailed discussion and rehash of policy statements, and the meeting finally broke up two and a half hours later. Even though they questioned him about the necessity of the meeting, the president knew his ordeal with Dr. Richards and the Hudson Project was finally over. Kamamuchu arrived in the Oval Office two days later. It was more of a celebration than a high-level discussion. All of the men were greatly relieved and extinguished any remaining anxiety with the drinks they consumed. Finally, the President, with glass in hand, stepped in front of both groups. Gentlemen, gentlemen, I'd like to propose a toast to Dr. Kamamucho. Without his efforts, we might, at this very moment, be in the midst of a dangerous crisis. And finally, to the United States of America whose government has survived this long ordeal. I must frankly say that I thought tonight would be the most trying night of my life. I know that this experience has been both frustrating and mind-boggling for all of you. 
Well, Mr. President, I must say I'm upset by the loss of life in this affair. I trust everyone will remain silent, but what about Polanski? You can't ethically hold him in that house forever. I haven't decided about Polanski. Christmas was a day away. Polanski was still incarcerated in the ranch house deep in the woods in upstate New York. For two weeks, he had pleaded with Perkins to call the president, but Perkins said he had his orders and refused to budge till he heard from the president. Polanski was genuinely depressed. He wasn't eating and had lost weight. His thoughts were obsessed with Redstone and his family. He would sit in the bedroom and close his eyes. Slowly, he would try to visualize the town that he had left behind. He rose from the bed and walked into the kitchen where Perkins was sitting at the table. Perkins, I want to talk to the president. Can't be done, you know that, Joe. I have my orders. I'll starve myself to death. I'll kill myself in some other way unless I can talk to him. You don't fool me, Polanski. You're not going to kill yourself. You'll be the one responsible. I just don't care anymore. I really don't. If you find me dead in the bedroom, it's just because you wouldn't let me make a phone call. Perkins rose and dialed Maxwell's number. Within a few minutes, Perkins was in direct contact with the president. Mr. President, I respectfully submit that you can't keep this man locked up here forever. He'll break, not because he wants to die, but because he's backed into a room with no exit. There was a long silence as the waves crashed along Lake Erie. Perkins tapped his fingers on his leg as he waited for the president's. Well, that's good. That's good. That's excellent. Thank you. Polanski! Polanski, get your ass out here. What is it? We're going to Florida to meet the president, buddy, he said as he smiled broadly and grabbed Polanski by the shoulders. You are joking, Perkins. No, no, I just talked to him. He wants us in Florida. And then what happens when I get there? 21 gun salute aimed at my head? I can't believe it. I'm getting out of here. I'm actually getting out of here. President lay in his orange and white lounger on a private beach on the Gulf Coast of Florida. The air was warm and the wind was blowing swiftly as he closed his eyes. Mr. President, said one of the agents who tiptoed up and back of him. The president could barely hear him but turned. Mr. President, Mr. Perkins is here with Polanski. Okay, thank you, said the president as he saw the two men standing on the patio behind the cement beach wall. He rose from the lounger and walked across the beach, his feet sinking in the hot sand. He leaped onto the small wall and then stepped onto the patio. Amidst the swaying palm trees and his ruffling hair, he shook hands with the bearded man who, despite his great struggle, seemed robust and very healthy. Do you guys like a drink? He asked both men as he walked over to the glass table without listening for their reply. He mixed himself a drink and shuffled over to the white, wrought iron furniture. Come over here, fellas, and sit down. They headed across the patio and sat at the table. Polanski stared at the president who sipped on the drink. He liked the president personally and admired his devotion to public service. He just couldn't overlook the president's actions of the past few weeks. I've decided to reunite you with your family, Polanski. Polanski's stomach tingled with excitement. I'm grateful, Mr. President. The situation is not as simple as it sounds and I don't know how pleased you'll be with the result. You will be reunited with your family but you'll be disassociated from your past acquaintances. You mean I'll be out of that town. As far as everyone is concerned, you died in Los Angeles six months ago. That 
cover stories already in effect. You will assume a new identity with your family in the country of your choice. How does that sound to you? Plansky found the arrangement an equitable trade, so the president's words were almost pleasing to his ears. That's fine with me, as long as I'm back with my family. I won't try and deceive you, Polanski. Your words and your actions will, for the rest of your life, be closely scrutinized. Anything that comes to your attention concerning the handling of this crisis, desired by you or any member of your family, the agencies will take appropriate action. You'll be killed because you were a spy against the United States government. Is that clear? How can I open my mouth without hanging over me and my family? Good, I'm glad you recognize the best interest of this country, said the president as he gulped down the rest of the drink. I'm afraid you're the one who's blind to the best interests of the country, snapped Polanski as he stomped over to the president, hovering over the sitting chief executive. Hey, Joe, come on, this would be better left unsaid. Say what you wish, Mr. Polanski, I can take the truth. Go ahead. Oh, you can take the truth? You have the nerve to talk about the truth? You put that warmonger, Monty, back in his old position with no action taken against him. He was acting in what he thought was the best interest of the country. And I fully understand. Well, I can't understand. What gives him or the others the right to act at all for 25 years? Who gave them that scope of responsibility? Certainly not the people of this country. I'm overlooking what you just said. What if he brought forth the secret of Project Hudson? So what? So what? Maybe you're just too narrow-minded and ignorant to realize the implications of that knowledge in the world community. The Russians... Don't give me that line about the Russians attacking us, Mr. President, because I just don't buy it. You're the one with a limited perspective. You fear a nuclear war, and I say a nuclear war is the least of your worries. You show a lack of understanding to the bare essentials of foreign policy, Mr. Polanski. I don't know why I'm even wasting my time talking to you. I've given you the deal, just take it or leave it. Well, you better wait a few more minutes, because I want to talk to you about the future of the world, Mr. President. I think it's time to go. No, I will graciously disappear into oblivion as you request. In the past six months, I've learned more about my existence on this planet than I had in my previous 46 years. And the one overshadowing element is the truth. And I don't mean to be trite or to rattle off cliches, Mr. President. The truth may hurt, Mr. President, but it will always result in what's right. You must report the truth of Project Hudson. You must. You, Polanski, are off your rocker. You want to see the world perish in a holocaust? You only listen to what I'm saying. I don't have all the answers, but I do know if you don't prepare the world for the dangers of time travel, the world as we know it will cease to exist. I've terminated Project Hudson. What more do you want? Yes, you have terminated Project Hudson. But another nation or a group of individuals will discover the principles of this time travel. It may not be tomorrow, may not be 500 years from now, but it will happen, whether you believe it or not, Mr. President. And when it does, you or some other future president won't have to worry about nuclear weapons being launched through time or some madman planning to mold the world into his own dark designs. No, Mr. President, somebody will go back in time. And despite all the dramatic reassurances, all the elaborate backup systems and the refined precautions, they'll change history. With a blink of an eyelash, they'll change everything. There'll be no 15-minute warning of missiles rocketing toward our country. 
It'll happen and no one will ever know. And man will progress again and it will happen again and again and again. The human existence on this planet will become a bigger farce than it already is, he said as he waited a few seconds. Who knows if someone in the future hasn't already traveled back in time and we could be the unhappy result of their callousness. He finished, turned from the president, and looked at the waves breaking onto the beach. The sun was getting lower in the sky as he looked across the vermilion water and wondered if he had just jeopardized the reunion with his family. The president got up and walked over to him, put his hand on Polanski's shoulder as he too looked out at the sun. Joe, he said in a lower voice, I think your aims are good. I think you show a sincere concern for our country. You're not thinking realistically. Present events dictate present actions and solutions. Another word for that, Mr. President. That word is short-sightedness. Joe, I have to caution you. The specter of death hangs over you and your family, okay? No, Mr. President. The specter of death hangs over the world. You just don't realize that the future of the world is at stake. The President pursed his lips. You'll be flown out of here. You'll be reunited with your family, and then you'll leave the country. Perkins will accompany you. Whatever you say, Mr. President, said Polanski. Well, I thought you'd be happier about it. I could have left you rotting in that house for the rest of your life. Is that all, Mr. President? Asked Polanski. Yes, that's all. But I do want to thank you on behalf of our country for the service you have performed. Good luck in your new life. Goodbye, Mr. President, said Polanski softly as he let go of the President's hand and was escorted by Perkins through the President's house back to the waiting car. Perkins drove the sedan from the Hotel Wilshire in downtown Washington. The heat had funneled warm air into the car as Polanski stared at the lighted Jefferson Memorial along the Potomac. Just ten minutes ago, he had learned that Barbara had married Ben Simpson when she thought he had died in Los Angeles. In the next breath, Perkins alluded to the fact that the marriage had failed and the two had become divorced. Polanski would meet Barbara at the Lincoln Memorial wasn't sure whether she had been briefed on the project, but she was told that Polanski was alive. Kids were back at an airport motel with Maxwell's agents and would meet them later. His stomach tingled when he saw the limo parked at the base of the monument steps. Aren't you going to put on a jacket, Joe? It's 10 degrees out there. He continued looking at the limo with the monument hovering behind. I'm okay, Perk. Perkins slowed the car and stopped. I'm happy for you, Joe. Thanks. Polanski opened the door and began walking toward the limo. The limo driver opened the rear door. Barbara emerged in a thermal red parka. She gazed forward toward the Washington Mall. But then she caught sight of Polanski trudging forward. She raised her hands to her open mouth. Polanski ran forward and lifted her into the air. I've missed you. I like your beard she said, smiling through the sniffles. The kids, they're at the airport motel, the Secret Service agents. They know all about the cliffs, Joe. We're going away. We're gonna start all over again. I know. Joe, I'm sorry about Ben. I thought it was the right thing to do with the kids. He hugged her as she nestled her head on his shoulder. It's over, Barbara, it's over. As he turned, the Capitol building blazed against the night sky top the hill at the end of the mall. 
Perkins gave him the thumbs-up sign. In the sky above Orion's belt, but below his shoulders, an expanding orange pinpoint slowly became an irregular mass. Even Perkins had turned to watch. It was as if someone had flipped a dimmer switch as it dissipated and the sky blackened. What was that, Joe? It's the end. The new beginning. Thank you for listening to The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton Theatre of the Words. Copyright 2023 by the Robert P. Fitton Revocable Trust. <laughs>